0: So I'm delighted to welcome everyone to the newest episode of Evidence Interaction, our Education Endowment Foundation podcast, where we explore evidence and we look at how it translates into practice. This podcast has the topic of effective professional development, and what we're going to draw upon is the latest EEF Gardener report and the commission review all about the evidence about professional development and how we support teachers to improve. And I'm delighted to welcome my expert co-host, Kirsten Mulholland. Uh, Kirsten, can you introduce yourself,
1: please? Yeah, hi. I'm Kirsten. I am the new um, content specialist for maths working with the EEF. Um, my um, day job, I suppose, is um, to work as a lecturer in education um, at Northumbria University. So uh, usually I'm involved in initial teacher education. Um, And before that, I was a primary school teacher um, working in schools in the northeast of England.
0: Thank you, Kirsten. And uh, almost indicative that in this podcast, we're going to speak to brilliant colleagues who have very different roles and real rich, different experiences of professional development. So our first guest will be Harry Fletcher-Woods. Um, who played an integral part in developing the review and he's written a lot about developing teachers and supporting teachers and their habits. So we'll speak to Harry about the review and the evidence. Harry's a former teacher himself and designs and has designed training for teachers and then we speak to Helen Bellinger and Tom Martell who are both school leaders in the system. Um, Helen based over at Doncaster Research School, Tom, based up in the Northeast. Um, And they bring, again, that insight of being teachers, also being school leaders, and delivering upon professional development and training. So we get a real feast of insights and expertise. So I'm really pleased to invite our first guest, Harry Fletcherwood. Harry, just introduce yourself and and your work, and, and particularly in relation to effective professional development.
2: Sure. Hi, Alex and Kirsten. Thanks very much for having me back. Uh, I am a, well, I'm a history teacher and I was then a head of professional development in a school and then spent uh, seven years trying to do two things at once. One was to, to try and offer and be involved in design of effective professional development and the other was to dig into the research underpinning it. I now work at tap where I work to try and offer head teachers a, a better understanding of what their teachers are thinking. And
0: just to be really explicit as well, you were one of the team who wrote the Review for Effective Professional Development, and, and we'll come on to that um, and the insights that you bring to that. Uh, one of the things you stated there is that you've uh, uh, welcomed back. So you're our very first guest who's uh, appeared more than once on the Um, Podcast, so thank you for coming back. Um, That that must be a positive that you you know you turned up and and you've come back. Uh, And also just to say, I think a a real strong reason why um, you are back is your expertise for effective professional development. But also, I think you've got a real unique ability to communicate complex evidence, and part of that's your experience being a teacher and having been a school leader too, and and dealt with the complexity so my first question probably a quick question but um back in that school role or or after actually but back in that school role what was the best professional development experience that you had
2: yeah w- one thing jumped out and I'll tell you a bit about it and then say who was it who, who it was um So I've been to three events run by the same team, and they're all designed around really tight principles. And so whatever they wanted us to do uh, or encouraging us to do, they talk a bit about, okay, um, you know, here's here's the key idea. Here's why this thing is important. Then they'd show us videos and examples, models of the stuff that they they thought was was valuable, and give us the chance to to pull those models apart. And then we'd spend a bit of time planning. Well, you know, how would I do this with my students in my classroom? And then we'd practice. And then we'd spend a bit of time thinking. Well, okay, how? Um, what do I practically need to do to make sure that I use this? Um, uh, on a regular basis uh, and the other thing that, that was, was great about it was that it was really it was vivid it was memorable it was a fun place to be uh, and the, those providers are Teach Like a Champion the the sort of American training providers and they had dedicated you know it's uh, five ten years to trying to make their training more effective and it really really sh- showed and that you know I came back and I just did and have never stopped doing some of the stuff that they taught me.
1: And when I read the, the, the guidance report I was really struck by how relevant it was um, for a range of, of different audiences so for example in my role just now I um, work with um, training students I, I work in initial teacher education um, although I know that that's not the, the direct um, focus of the review um, so I think there's, there's, a, there's a lot of relevance for, for a range of audiences can you, can you tell us a bit more about who might find this guidance useful?
2: Uh, well, my, yeah, you, I can underclaim and un- overclaim. So, to, <laughs> if if I tie it directly to the evidence, as as you say, Kirsten, we we looked at um, professional development programs for in-service teachers, so anyone from year two onwards in their career. That said, humans are humans, and actually, a lot of the things that we've said about professional development are things that you'd also say about um, teaching anyone of any age from zero upwards so definitely i'd I'd say anything i'd say with a slightly less strict evidence hat on anything in the review is something that you might want to consider if you do work in initial teacher education and indeed that you know the principles won't do any harm if you're working with with anyone with leaders with students whoever
0: One, one of the things that struck me was that point you just made about students and one of the um aspects was about thinking about cognitive load of teachers um was that something you were reflecting on in terms of you know what's good learning for students is invariably good learning for adults Uh, were there any differences just explore that a little bit
2: in my view teachers are human beings and what's good for students is also very very likely to be good for teachers people sometimes find that a bit of a strange statement they say well you know Teachers are adults and so they want you know, autonomy and they want their learning to be relevant and so on. You're like, well, actually, if you think about most students, they want autonomy and they want what they're learning about to be, to be relevant. Um, and so when I say we should make learning for teachers like we teach our students, that doesn't mean to d- diminish teachers. That means to sort of uplift our, our our students in that sense. But yeah, you know if if students struggle if you overload their working memory, adults struggle if you overload their working memory because the fundamental like mechanisms in the brain, um, the wiring is exactly the same. Likewise, if you know if the training's enjoyable, if it's practical, if you see it's relevant, if you feel you're making progress, all of those are things that we'd want teachers to feel at the end of a professional development session. And all of those are things that we want students to feel at the end of a lesson.
1: One, one of the things that I found really fascinating in the report was, was um, the, the talk about mechanisms um, and, and the balanced approach to professional development. Can can you tell us a bit more about that and about the findings relating to that?
2: Yeah, sure. So so let me split those uh, apart and talk about probably the balanced Approach first and then the mechanisms subsequently. So um, we looked at professional development and said, okay, what should a good professional development session do? And this was our sort of our our hypothesis. This was the theory we came up with at the start of the review that we then tested with all the studies that we found. And we figured that there were probably four things. So if you imagine a session that you're sitting in as a teacher, um, and let's say the session is about modeling. So one thing you'd want to get from that is something about the value of modeling Um, and realize, oh, actually, you know, modeling is is really powerful. Another thing you might want to get from it is a motivation like, okay. I would like to spend more time modeling with my students. I think there's something in this. You'd also want to get some kind of technique. So like, here's a really nifty way to, uh, to model in the classroom to make sure students are thinking hard about their model. They're not just kind of, you know, letting it drift over them. And then finally, if it's going to make a last, we've all had been, you know, been to insert and tried something, done it once and then forgotten about it. So if you want to make a, a lasting improvement to your teaching, then you need to change your, your practice. So th- these are our four things, promoting insights, motivating goal-directed behavior, teaching techniques and uh, embedding practice. And so our hypothesis before we, you know, collected all our evidence or sort of thing was, A study that, sorry, an experiment, a professional development program that does all four of these things is likely to be more effective than a program that doesn't. So for example, uh, if I uh, am taught a technique and I am encouraged to put it into practice, but I don't understand the why or I don't internalize the goal, it's likely to probably gonna end up with a lethal mutation. I'm kind of gonna use mini whiteboards but not necessarily in a way that advances formative assessment. Conversely, if we spend a load of time talking about, you know, uh, formative assessment is brilliant and the underlying evidence, but we don't spend time on the teaching techniques and the practical changes, I'm going to go away with a like formative assessment is brilliant and not actually going to do anything with that knowledge because I've got, you know, 27 other things to do as a teacher. And what we found when we gathered up all these experiments, over 100 experiments that we we looked at and stuck them all together, and we found that programs which had attempted to do something towards each of these four things were substantially more likely to have had an impact than programs that had done fewer of these four things. So what we're saying is, hitting all four of these things at some point in a program or in a session strongly appears to be desirable.
0: And just, just in terms of the mechanisms. So that second part, yeah. um, in the one of the things that I've found helpful was the toothpaste analogy about uh-huh. what the mechanism is, what it isn't. So could you just explain your view of the mechanism?
2: Yeah, sure. So, the, the, the mechanism is a question of how do you how do you pursue whatever these these goals are and i think uh, i have a, a personal bugbear uh, that we talk often in quite vague terms and we, we we sort of accept vague terms like collaboration or support or culture and if if you alex tell me you know what the way my professional development program works is is really supportive i'm like well, what do i do with that like h- how do you support people? What is the thing that actually happens in the room? Because it's only when I know that, that I can do something with it. So we built on uh, some really interesting work that's been done by uh, a group of psychologists over about the last decade, collecting up, like what are all the different ways, if you're helping people to change their behavior, that you might do that. And so they've created a long list of taxonomy of 93 uh, mechanisms uh, audience will be glad to hear we didn't stick with all of those. We, we whittled them down to 14, adding a couple, changing a couple, um, by looking at the evidence for these mechanisms and by looking at, well, okay, which which things actually work in uh, in teaching and which things wouldn't work. And so when I talk about mechanisms, I'm talking about things like um, goal setting. So, so it's a really concrete thing you could do and say, sit down with teachers and it could be you give them a goal say I want everyone to you know use exit tickets this week or it could be they set their own goal like you know we've talked about principles of formative assessment what are you going to do whether whoever set the goal setting a goal makes it more likely that um, teachers change their practice similarly another mechanism is action planning Um, so asking people to plan out well okay you say you're going to do your exit tickets when I'm going to do it in period five on Wednesday with year seven or whatever it is. And making concrete plans like that makes it more likely that I'm actually going to act because period five, I'm like, I know there was something I was meant to do rather than get to the end of the week. And I'm like, I know I was meant to do this at some point, but, but at the moment never came. So we collect these 14 mechanisms and we looked at them in various ways. But, but probably the key thing to, to emphasise is, on average, a professional development programme with more mechanisms appeared to be more likely to lead to improved student learning. So the more um, ways to help people change that are stuck into a program, the more likely it is that uh, that teachers teach better as a result. That shouldn't be hugely surprising because each of these mechanisms has evidence that it works. So we know that asking people to set a goal makes it more likely that they change. We know that making a plan makes it more likely that they change. What we've demonstrated is sticking that into professional development program helps
1: i can i can really see how including those different um, mechanisms and thinking about the the balanced approach in those four different kind of key areas that you that you talked about at the beginning that would be really important and so i suppose you start to think about how you would then implement that and and what i kind of go back to is, is how it might be a bit challenging in in i'm thinking about a staff frame. how how do you how can you reach those those hard to reach teachers or teachers where perhaps um you know their their existing beliefs are are, are different or, or conflict with the change that you're that you're trying to bring about is there um any insights from from the evidence about um how we can do that successfully
2: so i i'd say if, if i want to give you an insight it's more going to come from from practice than from the evidence uh, uh I've become more of a hippie about this, I think, over, over the last few years. And, and I, I just say like, you, you, can only, you can only reach people if you're offering them something and you're kind of meeting them where they are. And again, this is something we talk about with our students, right? But if I, if I rock up in a staff room and say, hey, everyone, you need to do X. Well, why should I? I'm busy. There's loads of other stuff going on. I've got a perfectly decent way of doing this where I think I'd then draw back in the so so you know I as a school leader or head of professional development or whatever need to have some way of, of accounting for all those things and so say maybe I'm going to start by saying okay here is a teaching challenge how do you currently address this challenge so you know one challenge we have is getting students to do their homework how do you address that at the moment Um what's working and what's not working and open up a kind of, well, is is there a need for change? And maybe I as a head of professional development need to rethink, maybe there isn't a need for change or maybe my massive like change everything. Well, actually I need to narrow it down into something that's, that's really feasible for my teachers where I draw back in the evidence then here particularly is to say, well, actually this is around this promoting insight and motivating goal directed behavior point. is like if I can take my teachers to a point where they see like, here is a thing and it's something that is going to be really worthwhile for my students, then they're probably going to work with me. But until that point, and also, you know, like, again, if if I haven't given them a valid technique, if I've just said be more inspiring, but I haven't told them how, the teach techniques, and I haven't helped them make space for it in their their lessons, they're going to reject it. And and honestly, they're going to be right to reject it. And I think anytime we see people being hard to reach, part of the question is, is, what do we need to do differently? Not. What what do they need to do differently?
0: Yeah, My colleague, uh, Joe Goodman, just earlier today, we were talking about pupils and families and actually reframing it a little that they're not hard to reach. Maybe what we're doing is hard to access. And and maybe, you know, I, I've been a school leader leading professional development and, you know, instinctively you start thinking, oh, why are they not engaging? And you start kind of, visit, you know, you can place bl- blame because everyone's working hard, you know, um, I, I think that's for me where you get back to again, you get back to the mechanisms promoting insight. How can we really clearly do that in a way that's accessible and attractive and actionable? Uh, what are your hopes for
2: the future of professional development, Harry? I'm excited I think this I think this this work um and the guidance report that's come out of it are a really big step forward for um, the profession of teaching and the profession of teacher development. So, I guess the first thing is, I hope it, it, you know, it sticks. I hope people read it. I hope they use it. I hope they disagree with it and and you know, disagree thoughtfully and and you know, write about ways that it can be improved upon. Um, we know that the the there is uh it takes a long time for evidence to to sort of permeate everywhere uh, and i hope that the me- the mechanisms the EF has and the mechanisms that like the enthusiasm of the profession brings uh will mean that that happens quite quickly because we don't you know like teachers need to help get better now we can't wait five years for for people to get around to this and um, so it needs to be used it needs to be you know refined and made usable we've done our best to make it usable but it's only colleagues in the field who will actually be able to take it and and sort of find ways to okay this is my most powerful way to help teachers um, attain insights this is how I've done it and this is what I would share and then it needs to be refined like you know all, all models are wrong but some models are useful we think it's a useful model but it, it's not the last word for a moment. In particular, as new evidence of mechanisms uh, comes out, there will be more mechanisms to to potentially add to this. Now, I'm not saying go and add them willy nilly. We we went through a really careful process that um, led to the the set of mechanisms that are in the the, the paper. But we're not claiming for a moment that's that that the mechanisms we could found evidence for in 2020 2021. There will be others.
1: Thank you so much. It's so interesting hearing um about your, your insights about this. Um and 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 thank you very much for your time.
2: Thanks, Harry. It's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: Yes, now, I always love listening to Harry. He he brings that kind of quite unique perspective of a researcher who's quite clearly in the classroom, still works with lots of teachers and, and understands the challenges and realities. And I and I think the guard report and the review is is practical and really understands the challenges of teachers in part because of, of people like harry what's your kind of reflection just just in response to some of harry's answers there
1: i really liked what he said about um about the way that the balanced approach can support teachers to engage with professional development. So I think I asked about, you know, what, how how do we reach teachers who might be, you know, we might feel that 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 some teachers are perhaps hard to reach um but but you know he really turned that on his head and he, he said that if we use those those kind of four different elements of that balanced approach that actually were enabling teachers were giving them the time we're giving them the the kind of um headspace capacity and um, we're really enabling them to be able to kind of engage with any kind of change that 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 we as school leaders are are, are trying to implement so that was really that really stood out for me
0: i, I think for me I can't. I can't help separate out my kind of past experiences from reading the guidance, um, and and I've done coaching before. I've done instructional coaching. I've done professional learning communities. Not quite done lesson study, but but know of it. And and these different approaches, I've always kind of assumed, oh, that works. That doesn't work. But actually, it was the mechanisms that's the bit of a revelation for me in terms of a really precise language. So it's not necessarily you know support, as Harry said. It's about what the precise things you do, setting goals, you know, kind of returning to those goals, real structures, real practical steps, and and that also you don't need to take every mechanism and and take every single step. You can be thoughtful. You can plot out that balanced approach. So I, I think for me. It's a bit late now. Uh, I'm not leading um, professional development in in a school anymore. But I think for those people who are and for those those people who are supporting schools and supporting trainee teachers and who supporting organizations who run training for adults, even beyond teachers, will find those mechanisms really valuable. So, yeah, it was just great to hear uh, from Harry and and to bring out the review. Our our next guest is going to be um, Helen Bellinger, who is... Uh, incredibly experienced school leader in the system who, once more, has led professional development, has designed professional development, has experienced professional development. So let's hear some of those practical experiences and and, and, and what she's learned from the guidance. So I'm really pleased to welcome my next guest, um, which is a long-time colleague of mine, Helen Bellinger. Who is strategic lead at Doncaster Research School? But, but Helen, can you introduce yourself for us? Tell us a little bit more about your background.
3: I will. Thanks, Alex. Yes, I'm. Uh, I'm Helen. Helen Bellinger from Doncaster. Doncaster Research School. Um, a former primary head teacher, system leader, LA advisor. Had lots of roles in the past. Now work um, with the research school, and um, been involved in in designing and facilitating on professional development programs over. Quite a number of years now, so um, yeah, really excited to be part of this uh, of this podcast today.
0: Thanks, Helen. And uh, we'll talk a little bit later on about about the work you did on the panel for the guidance report on effective professional development. But before before we get into all that detail and about you know the, the latest evidence, etc., I just want to ask you that question: What is your best ever professional development experience we often hear all those kind of you know kind of shock horror stories but what's your best ever experience
3: oh that's a that's a tricky one to start with um I I think first of all I'd like to say I've had many positive professional development opportunities in my career and and some perhaps that were less positive as I think most of us have um But one that really does stand out for me, that that really did influence my practice as a leader, um, was the Consultant Leaders Program, which the National College ran a number of years ago now. Um, And and really reflecting on why it was so good, I just found it really motivating. Um, It was thoughtfully designed. There were expert facilitators. I can even remember their names. They were called Glyn and Gwen. Um, They were brilliant. Um, It had relevant content, which even back then was was evidence-informed. Um, And it provided those opportunities for new learning, but also self-reflection, collaboration, some planning time. But I think above all, it probably, the the best thing about it was it really did challenge my perceptions of the role of a system leader. And it it really made me reflect on my own sort of habits, traits, behaviours. And it seemed to have all the right ingredients. We we might call them mechanisms now, of course. and, And it was at the National College. So that was a definite bonus. Um, But it did influence the way in which I then went on to support and provide support to other school leaders. Quite a quite pivotal for me at that point in my career, I'd say. So, yeah, that's probably the one that stands out.
0: And you've just given uh, that example of of training from the National College and um, we're now in a kind of. We're not post-pandemic yet, are we? But we're kind of in a very different world with technology and with kind of experiences of professional development that seem like they're changing almost weekly and monthly. Um, what are your reflections on just the current position of professional development in, in the school system as, as we speak now?
3: Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I think we've moved a long way. Um, From the days when the professional development handbook or compendium was put down on the staff room table and you got to choose two or three courses if you were lucky. And there were things like dance and design and technology, not very much on pedagogy and teaching and learning. I think we've moved on significantly from there. And we've also moved away from sort of whole staff training and staff meetings sort of being hijacked by operational and school management issues. So I think, you know, schools have have come an awful long way. And I do think that they'd have a much better understanding um, of the importance of effective professional development. That sort of, that crucial role it plays in improving classroom practice and pupil outcomes. I think think schools think much more carefully about maximising the time and the money they have to spend on professional development. And, And until now, we've not really had such clear guidance on what might work when designing and selecting PD. So it's quite a, a good time, really, for the, for the guidance report to be launched. Perfect timing in terms of the sort of new initiatives and reforms, things like the early career framework, the new MPQs. You know, really, really great time to be to be um, introducing the guidance.
0: Yeah, it's, it's kind of quite pivotal timing, isn't it? You talked about in the system, we've got ECF, MPQs. Also, we are just grappling with... Um, school conditions at the moment and thinking about different platforms. And um, I think it's an it's a crucial time, teachers and school leaders, perhaps more challenged than than any recent time I can remember, but actually one of those important levers, type, that reflection you talked about, that kind of constructive challenge, that support of PD f- feels timely as well, if we can find that window of time and, and that support to do it well. I have to say, when you mentioned about... Um, those, those one-off trainings. I do vividly remember back to my one training um, day a year that I used to get. And I, I can remember my first one being on interactive whiteboards. Um, and I spent One day interactive whiteboards. Um, I had one classroom in my week I was a bit, you know, kid in lots of different classrooms. Um, so I had one hour a week to practice using the interactive whiteboard, uh, and I didn't. And, and probably that kind of condemnation of how we might in the past have considered professional development as a bit of a one-off. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I think that, that consideration that we have now, and that's where the guidance really starts to break that down, doesn't it, in terms of, you know, what do we mean by a structure? How can we meaningfully... Can sustain that thinking and 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 support.
1: Hi Helen, thanks that was really interesting to hear you talking about um, about professional development there. I just wondered if you could tell us a bit more about your experiences of being part of the professional
3: development panel? Yeah it's really been a privilege to be involved and and part of the panel. I I think it's a great example of of academics and researchers working with practitioners and I think that's a, a really powerful model Um, I think being part of the panel, I tried to sort of view certainly the draft report through the eyes of a a teacher and leader in a school, sort of how they might perceive the key messages and and also brought some reflections on the most useful aspects from other guidance reports. So aspects that we know schools find particularly helpful Um, and in pulling the guidance report together, it's been really important for us to get the right balance between academic language and accessible language. So, that the recommendations and the messages are easily understood by schools. And and that's been quite tricky. Um, But but to do that well and and to sort of support that, I think including the the examples, the vignettes, to sort of exemplify the key messages with real life examples, it just really helps to make the recommendations, the key messages, um, much more accessible for schools. I suppose I also wanted to highlight the importance of school context um, in terms of my involvement on the panel. And so recommendation three, which is about careful implementation and, and taking into consideration the school context, is a really important one for me. Um, so, so the importance of that sort of intelligent adaption, making sure that the mechanisms are prioritised and protected with fidelity, but making sure that it's right for the context which the school is in. That's really interesting to hear
1: about you know about your reflections about
3: the importance of
1: kind of making this really kind of concrete and relevant and 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 visible for teachers um and about that language and also about the the context um i wonder if you could kind of tell us anything um a bit more about anything that you thought that was particularly kind of significant um that came out of the the guidance apart from those areas
3: yeah i think there's there's perhaps sort of two key reflections uh, here from me i think firstly this concept of mechanisms as the building blocks of of effective professional development, that they're really clearly defined in the guidance the 14 mechanisms, you know, the four groups really making sure that professional development focuses on, on building knowledge, on motivating teachers, on developing teacher techniques and on, on embedding practice. And it's really clear in there. I think it's really interesting that they've been supported by evidence from research on human behavior, you know, and, 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 um, and that they've been found in context beyond teaching to change practice. So some powerful evidence sitting behind that. And and the guidance gives us some suggestions as to how those mechanisms might be incorporated into effective PD design. You know, the table, there's a table there that helps to explain what do we mean by mechanisms? What's the difference between programs, forms, mechanisms, really useful in in really defining um, what the language means. And There's also an example of what a program might look like. So where there's a a balanced design and where those mechanisms have been incorporated and what they look like. So, you know, lots of worked examples in there that I think are really useful because they really do illustrate um, the importance of ensuring that that we we think beyond uh, what might be considered to be an abstract concept, like a a mechanism, to something that's much more tangible and usable. Um, so, so I think those who select professional development can now look for those mechanisms in prospective programmes and those who design can include them in their design. And I, I'm really quite excited as a, as a programme designer to start to put that evidence into practice. Um, and then secondly, I think in terms of a key insight, particularly from a, a research school perspective, it's, it's the importance of ensuring that the content of professional development is evidence based. You know, mechanism four is all about presenting information from a credible source. And then it goes on to explain that, you know, that could include published and and robust research, but it could include, you know, featuring an education academic or an expert speaker, but also equally an expert teacher or practitioner. Um, And of course, the more credible the source, the more likely the participants are to change the practice. So that for me is is a really important insight. And and I think we've we've come a long way in recent years in moving towards much more evidence-informed professional development. But there's probably much more work to do here and and mainly around sort of supporting schools in determining what is and isn't credible. So, yeah, I think I think there's sort of some further work for us to do there just in terms of really defining that.
0: So, Helen, we started talking about um, your best ever professional development experience in the past. Um, and we've moved to the present and thinking about how the, the usefulness of, of updating professional development right now and, and all the challenges schools are facing. What are your reflections on PD as we move forward into the future? And what are your, what are your hopes for professional development? So we, we've moved forward a lot, you've said, but w- what do you think are those next steps? What are your hopes?
3: I think, I think I've probably touched on this all, already, but I, it's really for me about... About wanting schools to be much more discerning consumers of professional development. So so thinking about when they're sourcing professional development, knowing more, understanding more about what it should look like, Uh, being able to ask the right questions. I think that's going to be so important in the future and helping schools to identify what those questions are. Um, And in terms of that sort of homegrown professional development, as we've said, for for schools to be much more skilled at designing it and facilitating it internally, I think what we need is, is for those professional development providers, whether they're trusts or teaching school hubs, curriculum hubs, research schools, to really appreciate the importance of using this guidance report to evaluate and reflect on their current PD provision. And on how they design and facilitate, and and then to use the guidance report and the recommendations to further develop their practice. That that's that would be my hope. Um, I think we also need to ensure that that those who are facilitating professional development are giving the training that they need, uh, because we make assumptions sometimes that you know that magically that they just know all of this stuff. And and I think whether they're facilitating on on ECF on MPQ, whether they're facilitating on behalf of a trust. A hub and another organization we need to make sure we invest time in training everybody um, and making sure they really understand these principles i think i think to date um the research evidence has really failed to provide us with a clear set of principles on, on how to design and deliver effective pd and, and and improve pupil outcomes until now so you know I'm i'm really excited
0: That was really interesting. Lots to think about that. If we what was your first um, kind of big reflection on that, Kirsten?
1: Um, I was really interested in what Helen had to say about um the importance of kind of ordering existing professional development um and also maybe modelling what it what it should like look like if you're using this balanced approach. Um because I was kind of reflecting on some of my own professional development experiences, some some that I've experienced or or some that I've led. And I was thinking that I can definitely see gaps where I've where I've missed out different different elements. So I was thinking that probably I can see where I've maybe built knowledge and, and maybe, you know, try to motivate teachers. But then those 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 kind of the third and fourth um groups where you're like maybe look into to really develop understanding of those techniques and model and rehearse, and then providing those opportunities for embedding. I can see that they're probably the areas where maybe. You know, I didn't didn't prioritise those, or didn't give enough attention to those to really make sure that that what I was looking to develop was developed in practice. So that really stood out for me.
0: Yeah, that I, I couldn't help but reflect about my own past experiences as well. And <laughs> one one of the things that stood out for me um, is that form of like coaching. So coaching is in the guidance, but actually it's not just about that form, instructional coaching or lesson study, or, you know, the whole range of different approaches you can take It is about all of those elements. It's those mechanisms that mean, whether it's quality coaching, whether it's a purposeful coaching. And and I think we did coaching triads and we thought about the structure and we did think about kind of knowledge and, and revisiting but, but, yeah, we just didn't think about enough of those key mechanisms, and I think now it's all value of hindsight, isn't it? I think yeah. you know, having that kind of four areas let's look if we're doing coaching let's you know we might have bought it in, we might be designing it ourselves and making it really bespoke for our school or our trust, but we need to really scrutinize it and and yeah audit it, so I think we've probably come to the same reflection and um, born upon kind of the challenge of, of developing and leading out professional development. Um, and that leads nicely um, to our next um, interview. I'm gonna to speak to uh, Tom Martell, who's an, another um, brilliant school leader who was part of the panel. So I'm really pleased to now introduce our third and final guest, um, Tom Martell. Tom, uh, can you introduce yourself?
4: Yes, yeah, certainly. Uh, so my name's Tom. Um, I am uh, I've got I've got a slightly unusual job. So I teach science um, uh, to secondary age students, um, but I also lead a research school and a teaching school hub. So I guess essentially I help teachers, I guess really at every stage of their career, from sort of initial teacher training through to headship, um, to, to, to be more effective and, and to to sort of get the very best outcomes for pupils and particularly for the most disadvantaged pupils um so you're
0: involved in professional development from lots of different Mm. angles there you know quite yeah you know from being receiving it but also thinking about professional development for lots of different groups of people let's just start personally then so in your teaching career what's the best professional development experience that you've had and why
4: that's a brilliant question so I I think the best professional development experience I've had is not particular program or sort of an event but it was probably right at the start of my career i had just an amazingly nurturing environment to develop as a teacher so yeah i engage i got lots of great input lots of great ideas but it was actually a couple of colleagues who i worked with who were just brilliant at sort of providing this environment where there were high expectations for my development it was low threat um, and they sort of had just this constant dialogue of helping me to develop as a teacher. And there wasn't, you know, you couldn't uh, capture that on on paper, if you like, but it was and and sort of describe that as um, sort of a particular form of professional development. But it was this ongoing, really rich debate, discussion, modelling, correction. Uh, one of the things that I, I really uh, realised how fortunate I was at the time was I used to, my science lab used to interconnect with a, uh, a colleague called Hillary. And Hilary was, um, she taught for sort of 30 odd years and was just exceptional as a teacher. And she was, it was this ongoing sort of modelling, support, feedback. She'd come in, she'd be like, right, what are you doing today? Sort of critique and tear apart all of my ideas in the nicest way possible. And it was, And it was, like I say, it was the fact that the big thing that I sort of took from all of it, and when I look back at it now, it was that Hilary and my other colleagues provided this chance for me to I guess really reflect on my practice but also to do things and to try things out in the classroom as a result of of a number of different I guess sort of what you might term more sort of traditional sort of uh, professional development opportunities that I was engaging with so like I said I think that for me was probably the most it was that sort of really brilliant environment to develop in if you like.
0: Uh, That's really interesting I think that kind of that social support and, and we recognise like the culture of the school and all of these factors of like high trust, and then where you're allowed to be critical, but in a in a safe way that you feel supported with that you know critical feedback. The, these are those factors that are they're quite hard to pinpoint and kind of and to observe, but but we know we know they're there, don't we? And kind of that, that research I think is from Craft um, in the US around mm. cultures of schools and where professional development happens um it feels so important but actually hard to get to grips with a little
4: too it it is and and when i when that's lots of people kind of look at that and it's 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 some of these intangible things that are quite hard to describe it's not it's it would be difficult to sort of capture on paper but when it looks like when when you sort of experience it it really is i think i think sort of brilliant and like i said when i i didn't appreciate it at the time maybe how a uh, sometimes atypical is, is probably what i would say that i've sort of seen more broadly from my work Um, with schools. But yeah, I think, like I said, that was an an exceptional opportunity, I think, for me to develop as a teacher.
0: Okay. And and you've talked about kind of what's typical in schools now and and in the past. Um, What are your reflections just on the current position in the system with professional development? So quite obviously, we've had, you know, we have the pandemic to grapple with, and and that's kind of, you know, driven, you know, kind of a bit of a truck through a lot of plans for the last couple of years, um, in truth. Um, but also there's kind of new you know you're part of a teaching school hub there's there's new mpqs there's new training there's there's challenges around that and kind of capacity challenges um you've got this kind of diverse experience all these different kind of hats that you're wearing if you like what what what's your
4: reflections on on that on the challenges and, so, and promises so, yeah so I, I think it is a really Interesting time, if you like, around professional development. But I, th- I think what I would say is just stepping back from all of the day-to-day noise of it, there are two statistics from the EF's work that I think about a lot, if you like. The first of these, that of all of the things that the EF tests through their trials, uh, their randomized control trials, only about one in five of them are any better than what schools are already doing. And there's a handful that actually don't have a positive impact as, as well. But the flip side to that is if you ask teachers in these trials what their perception is of them, the latest figure that I've seen on that, um, it, it's about 93% of teachers really like it. That So you've got this strange this strange position of the evidence tells us on average, the, these kind of new approaches, these new things in schools, they're no better than what schools are already doing. But teachers' uh, perceptions of, of professional development is, is that they, they t- tend to sort of value it. And I don't quite know what to make of that if you, if you like I think there are lots of lessons that you can take around that you, you know you can sort of you might sort of get get frustration and say oh you know there's kind of over promises made to schools if you like with some of the marketing in the, in some of these things and so on I think that I think that's what one way of looking at it I guess another way of looking at it is just to say professional development is really hard um and and, and it's really hard to get right um if, if you read the 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 professional development guide Um, in in the artwork there are lots of cogs Um, and I don't know if this was intentional but I think one of the things that I, I sort of think about this is that often in professional development is one part of a broader piece and it's how these cogs kind of interconnect and sort of turn together and i think often you can have these brilliant programs but they're just sort of spinning in isolation if, if, if you like um so, so that's like i said i don't think that's a pessimistic view but i guess i i, I guess like I, said, I keep coming back to those figures if, if you like because I, I think they're they're important anchors i think when thinking about professional development
1: is there anything that you think that you will do differently when you're planning or leading um, professional development moving forward as a result of this report?
4: 100%. So, so for me, the I, I think when I look across almost every CPD I've ever been in uh, kind of at different levels, we probably do uh, too much of the sort of building knowledge. If you like, there's, t- there's too much stuff we're trying to do. And I think there's often not enough emphasis put around um, the sort of actually... Giving teachers a chance to actually trial out some of these things, uh, so and the guidance, what we're grouped together as sort of developing teaching techniques and actually sort of embedding practice. More broadly, my, my experience with kind of a few of the guidance reports the, the the tension that you have with these is that that people often read the headlines and think, yeah, yeah, do you know what, we do that already, and you, and you kind of and there's um there can be sort of a complacency with them. I think that may sound a little pejorative, but I I would say that there's maybe a risk of sort of confusing familiarity with some of these ideas with actually doing them really consistently and with real quality and rigor and 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 with all of these guidance reports from the ef like say if you just read the headlines you it's easy to just think john we we know that already but it's in the detail and, and it's one of the things that um I've got the good fortune to be involved with across the research school network is um, sort of really sort of sustained professional development programs. So where we have a chance to really sit down with teachers and explore some of these things. And one of the things about professional development that has really surprised me from a a colleague in the Research School Network who um, I think lots of people know, someone called Diane Heritage, one of the things that she uh, introduced to me when I first started at VF was giving teachers time to read things during professional development. That that to me seemed like a real cop-out in terms of planning, um, but actually providing times genuinely to read, to discuss, to engage with some of these guidance reports, because you realise that teachers have so much, so many things that sort of come across their desks and so on. Actually having the time to really read and think and engage deeply with things is really important.
0: And that picks up on that very first kind of mechanism around managing cognitive load. And, and it almost, for me, that feels a really important one. We know, we know about cognitive load from, from children's learning and, and that kind of useful theory. And it and also links back to the kind of the, the last recommendation about time what what are your reflections around you know you've just said about you know we might have a study group we might read things within the training and not expect you know teachers always have these expectations of additional work what are your thoughts around pd given our limits of time given
4: our limits of structure i I think this is a, this is challenging um and and i think you know i think a lot of the choices that we make around professional development are like I say these ultimate constraints around time if if you like that we're we're often sort of hemmed into doing things that would be that are less optimal because of that and and i guess there are sort of two things I, i would say about that one is i think there's a need to um to be to more ruthlessly prioritize um i think a phrase you, you i'd like of yours alex is to sort of shrink the problem around things and i think too often with professional learning programs we try and do everything if you like but actually shrinking down the problem to fit the time available instead of sort of saying well we've only got five hours for this we're still going to try and do everything if, if you like is one thing but i think the other is to record is to think about cpd as as part of a wider process so i for me i i really look at this report alongside the putting evidence to work guidance report, which is all about implementation. Um, and I think seeing, implement- seeing CPD as one part of an implementation process is really crucial. But I think there's also where I hope uh, that, 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 that schools and, and, uh, and other organisations involved with this really go with this is a recognition of trade-offs. Um, there's, a, there's a lovely sort of, uh, uh, as ever, sort of quite a pithy quote from Dylan William about sort of the art of school leadership basically being kind of stopping good things so that you can do even better things. And I would say that there's maybe a piece there about, about professional development, that there are probably some less effective things that we could do in to- in, in school to make more time for this, if you will. And I, I think that is probably the challenge that, that I would uh, put to people is saying, actually, the, the, the evidence house is just a really promising thing to do, to invest in teacher development. But to get the most from it, um, you know, we need to create this time. And I think there's there are opportunities to be more creative with some of that.
0: So, Kirsten, that was really interesting to hear those different perspectives on professional development. It's it's given me kind of new questions about about what what we do next, about the guidance and about what support teachers need. Um, It's a complex area, but I think there's been a common message that it's helping this guidance and and new evidence is helping sharpen up our understanding of of what professional development is and what it isn't. What, What are your final thoughts?
1: Yeah, there's, I really like the emphasis on, on, on meeting people where they are and, and really thinking about what is going to um, best, um, I suppose, encourage children, uh, people to come along with you on, on that, that kind of professional development journey. So thinking about the balanced approach and, and how we can really engage um, colleagues from the start and then also um, bring that support over the longer term so that we're developing those techniques and embedding that practice as part of that balanced approach that that really um i think has potential to make huge difference to to practice
0: i I think what's striking me is that it's really helpful to have that balanced approach those four areas and thinking about what mechanisms we might kind of bake into our training for for teachers Um, but also you know very quickly everyone's under pressure we mightn't quite read the guidance we might you know we might get a version of the guidance that we get kind of communicated to us or see a poster and And then quickly, we might move towards this compliance model where we have, you know, there's 14 mechanisms, you have to tick all the boxes, you know, your professional development this school year isn't going to be good enough if you've not done all 14. I think for me already, just hearing about the nuance of of the evidence from from our, our colleagues in the interviews just makes me think about we need to make sure we use the balanced approach in a supportive way. We might narrow down and be really clear about four or five mechanisms across, you know, embedded embedding practice, et cetera, rather than this is a new stick to beat teachers with and school leaders now need to kind of apply this. Um, it really is about professional judgment and, and, and about expertise. So, yeah, I'm thinking about the benefits here, the sharpening of language, but also, you know, how things mutate and, and those potential lethal mutations.
1: I think that's really interesting, that uh, because I think I think that what you've just said there is 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 really kind of empowering individual school leaders to to use their best their their expert judgment around their expert knowledge of their, of their own settings, and so then you've you've kind of got that that model those, those four those four um, elements of the balanced approach, and then the mechanisms within them that then that can be, um you know, used really um intelligently then t- to ensure that the the professional development that's planned works for that individual setting
0: yeah I, I think if I think about some of the training that Harry, Helen and Tom talked about, I think we've come a long way from the kind of professional development is what happens on the fifth of September, <laughs> and it happens twice you know afterwards in the year. These kind of you know these inset days where they're not really you know baked into regular ongoing practice. They might have a couple of techniques, but they all wash away. I, I think actually this evidence is just another milestone in how as a as a profession as school leaders we're really better understanding how we support teachers and and there's no time um you know like now to support teachers with high quality professional development so I, i think that's that's us let's wrap up um thank you for everyone listening do subscribe to the podcast and 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 sign up for the next episode where we'll be again sharing some of the newest most interesting evidence that's usable and actionable for school leaders and teachers. Thank you again.